Artificial intelligence is everywhere. It's managing our social media feeds, the devices in our homes, our online shopping, the way we get our news, really the way we live each and every day. It's influencing all of us, including our children and teens, who are destined to live with more and more artificial intelligence as the years pass. In his new book, The Age of AI, Jason Thacker helps us see artificial intelligence's impact on our bodies, sexuality, work, warfare, economics, medicine, parenting, and privacy. Join us as we talk to Jason Thacker about how parents and kids can navigate the age of AI to the glory of God in ways that don't compromise our human dignity on this episode of Youth Culture Matters. From the Center for Parent Youth Understanding, this is Youth Culture Matters. If you're a parent, youth worker, educator, counselor, grandparent, or anyone else who cares about kids, we're glad you've joined us for this practical, informative, and hope-filled podcast. This is a place where together we talk and think Christianly about the rapidly changing world of today's children, teens, and young adults. Well, welcome everybody to another episode of Youth Culture Matters. I'm Walt Mueller here at CPYU, and as usual, joined by Jason Soshinik, who's on the West Coast in Spokane. Welcome, Jason. Good to be here. That's what that's your that's your typical response. I, that's my I go-to. That. Yeah, that's the good. great way of uh, stepping right into. Yeah, what well, we're we get into in habits, today. and I've got habits of how I start this as well. Absolutely. I'm really excited about our guest today and the conversation we're going to have, and. This is part of a continuing conversation we have here at CPYU. Just to give you a little background, probably about uh, 10, 11 years ago, maybe maybe even before then, I started when I would be out traveling and, and speaking about youth culture, getting this, you know, just this constant flow of questions, most of them coming from moms who were trying to figure out how, how to navigate this new world of technology, specifically smart or cell phones. Smartphones weren't on the scene just yet. But they would ask me questions like, hey, you know, my 13-year-old daughter tells me she's the last person on the face of the earth to have a cell phone. When should I allow her to get a cell phone? And I would answer honestly and say, hey, I don't know. And so we started to research this a little bit more, as we do with all of the trends that we look at here at CPYU. And we actually launched, as a result of fielding so many of those questions, a Digital Kids Initiative, which folks can find at uh, digitalkidsinitiative.com or scroll down to the bottom of our homepage at cpyu.org and you'll find a connect to that. And that place is just populated with all sorts of things about technology and how to, how to manage our technology that is coming on the scenes, you know, from a Christian perspective, you know, do it Christianly to the glory of God. So one of the aspects of that that... I'm really working hard to learn about is this future with technology and specifically artificial intelligence. And so today we're welcoming Jason Thacker, who's written a, a great book that's published by Zonervan. It's called The Age of AI, AI uh, subtitled Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. And Jason is joining us, I believe, from a closet in the Nashville area. Is that right, Jason? That's right. Yeah, yeah, I love My fancy studio yeah, over I, here in Nashville. I, and I love with COVID how we all get into these interesting, interesting situations and places. But it's wonderful, you know. The good gift of technology is allowing us to have this conversation and for folks to be able to listen into it today. And Jason is working with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. What he's doing uh, specifically there, he's the chair of research in technology ethics. So he gets to talk about these things and write about these things all day. So we're glad you're here, Jason. And, and I want to jump into this uh, just to get a little bit of, of some understanding. First, you know, your story. What is it that prompted your interest in this and your passion for looking at technology from a Christian perspective? I think that's a great way to start off. And first, I'd say thank you for having me. It's a joy to be with you guys, and I really appreciate a lot of the resources that you guys put out, um, and they're very helpful for the church in helping to encounter a lot of these and engage a lot of these really pressing issues like technology like we're talking about. But for me, I grew up surrounded by technology, and I'm a little young to say that um, because my father worked for a Fortune 500 tech company most of my early childhood up until I was kind of a early teen so I was surrounded with technology. I joked when I was writing the book, I texted my dad and said, hey, when did we get the internet? Because I was writing a little bit about data and privacy 
and I like to intro each of the chapters with a kind of a personal story about my connection or something that I was thinking about related to that topic. And I asked him and he said, oh, probably like 1986. And I said, what? That The internet wasn't even out at 1986. He's like, yeah, but I was actually connected to the local Air Force base um, because we were doing packet swapping and like I was the early days of the internet. And so I was laughing, um, but we had internet from the very beginning and we had computer parts. And I remember my dad coming in with huge bags of copier parts and computer boards and motherboards and things and dumping it out on the floor. Um, of our living room and my, me and my sister would build robots and I put quotes around that because they didn't move they didn't do anything uh, they just looked cool and we were having fun with it so I was always very familiar with technology specifically the hardware side um, I became a believer when I was actually 18 I kind of grew up in and out of the church I really did not understand the gospel I thought it was just be a good person and yeah Jesus is alive but didn't really mean anything to me uh, until I was 18 understand my need for a savior, my the depth of my sin, and how Christ had risen from the grave uh, as we just celebrated Easter, um, Jesus raising from the grave so that I could have life in him and everlasting life with the Father. And so for that, then I went in and I felt a call into ministry. And I looked and was serving my local church, went on to seminary, started studying theology, ethics, started studying a lot of these concepts but not really in light of technology. And it wasn't until I actually came to the ERLC um, here in Nashville that these two worlds kind of converged. And how that happened was through reading a book um, called Homo Deus. It's a New York Times bestseller uh, by an Israeli historian named you all know her Harari. And Harari writes about kind of the rise of technology. He has the best subtitle, uh, which is A Brief History of Tomorrow. I just really love that. I wish I could have coined that, but he obviously did. Um, and in the book, he kind of projects a vision of what he thinks is coming with the rise of technology and its ubiquity in our lives and how it's shaping and forming us. And for me, obviously, he's not coming from a Christian perspective. It's a very secular uh, Jewish perspective. And as I was looking at that, I was like, man, we really need some gospel resources, um, some ways to think about these issues biblically, because a lot of the things that he was talking about were either caricatures of the faith uh, we're not actually an understanding of Christianity, specifically maybe some other religions. And so for me, I wanted to engage that space. And that's where I started picking up resources and started writing. And then all of that kind of culminated into the book. That's awesome. We have a, we have parents and youth workers who are part of our primary audience for this. And I know that in the church, one of the, one of the great errors that we make and we seem to miss is the fact that our faith needs to be integrated into every nook and cranny of life. And certainly with discipleship, as youth workers and parents are thinking about discipling children and teens into the Christian faith, if it is for every nook and cranny of life and every square inch, you know, the, the gospel does say something. The scriptures do say something about technology and, and how we use it and what tools we will integrate into our lives and how we conduct ourselves on social media. Can you talk a bit about that, just the necessity of that and the importance of integrating faith into this particular area of life? Yeah, it's one of those things often when we think about the faith or we think about Christ and what he did on the cross and the gospel, we often think of this as kind of a segmented area of life. And this is kind of a newer phenomenon in many ways of the last hundred years or so kind of post-enlightenment where there's a separation between spirituality and real life. But for reality is, is that the scriptures speak to all of life. They call us, we're called to be go therefore and make disciples. It's not just sharing the gospel and seeing conversion, seeing soul winning, seeing people come to faith in Christ. It's being a disciple, it's being a follower of Christ and having our entire life transformed as a new creation. And so you're exactly right. The scriptures there's nowhere in the scriptures you're going to read about technology proper or you're going to read about artificial intelligence by any means. But the biblical story is really helpful in approaching a lot of these developments and understanding who we are. Um, kind of stepping back, I think some of the big questions that we should be asking in light of technology is, is there a God? And if so, what is he like? And then from there is who we who are we as created in God's image? What does it mean to be human? And then what is technology? And by the by the first probably four or five chapters of Genesis, you actually see all of the answers to those questions, that God is the creator of all things, that he created us in his image, in his likeness to reflect him. 
and how we're called to work and cultivate the ground and keep it. And then you see the rise of technologies, early mod- uh, pre-modern technologies about how to work the ground, how to build even like the Tower of Babel. You see a lot of these things early on, weapon technology, agricultural technology, and how God has called us to utilize these tools for his glory and for the good of uh, humanity. And that's where I really sum it up going back to Matthew 22, where Jesus is summing up the entirety of the law, the entirety of the scriptures by saying, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the entire law. That's the entirety of what it means to be a gospel follower and ultimately what it means to live ethically in this life. And so when we approach issues of technology with specifically the ubiquity of artificial intelligence and how it's integrated into really every facet of our life, whether we realize it or not, we're called to live ethically and biblically as believers. And that really falls under that rubric of loving God and loving our neighbor. This is so good, and I think that I, I want our parents for just a moment to, to be able to take in what Jason Thacker just said because I think that it's really important, and it aligns a lot with what we're always trying to be able to accomplish within the podcast. The, the rhetoric, the dialogue is forming an ability to look at the world but allow for it to be determined and, and interpreted through the lens of Scripture, and I, I, I so appreciate the way that you're thinking about this. But you did use a term that I think that sometimes people can get caught up on, and that's artificial intelligence, your book, The Age of AI. I I think that uh, parents, I think youth workers, it's just a word that sometimes that's out there. And for some, it it brings great joy. And others, uh, I, I think this is true for a lot of parents, it brings great fear. So could you define what is artificial intelligence uh, and how we interact it, like w- interact with it uh, on a daily basis, like what would be included within AI or the way in which you describe it in your book? Yeah, and I think that's a really helpful way to approach it, Jason, is saying most of the time when you hear artificial intelligence or AI, you have one of two kind of things that come to mind, either a deep fear, kind of a pessimism looking towards like the iRobot, killer robots take over. You see this play out in a lot of Hollywood thrillers. Um, on the silver screen, you see that kind of fear of killer robots and the rise of these things. And so there's a great fear in that. And then on the flip side, there's this kind of unbridled optimism almost of technology. If it's going to revolutionize and change our world, and maybe there are a few things bad in it, but by and large, it's just kind of, it's a good movement. We should pursue it all, all of it, innovation for innovation's sake. But as Christians, we don't have to get caught up in the hype. So often when you look at our AI, or you see news stories, you see red-eyed robots, or you hear about all the glories. For us as Christians, we can step back and take a realistic look at these technologies. So AI simply is just non-biological intelligence or the ability of a computer to make certain intelligent decisions or to think per se. And does this mean that it's exactly like a human being? No. And there's a couple different uh, terms that I think are helpful when we're talking about AI. Often we just say AI is one big kind of ubiquitous type of technology, but really there's a couple different things going on here. One, or you have algorithms, AI technology that's called narrow AI, which is simple the simple ability of a machine to do one task at the very narrow application of that. So an example of that and how we're utilizing AI really all the time is anything that's considered a smartphone, smart device, smart appliance, smart anything, that's a piece of technology is often driven by some form or variation of artificial intelligence. Now, this includes the Nest thermostat. This includes your smart speaker, your smartphone, Siri. Um, you can go all the way to issues of communication, our social media feeds, the algorithm that everyone talks about with social media is an AI technology. Um, AI really undergirds most of our economy, most of our manufacturing, our national security, our communication systems, our medical technology. So much research is done through artificial intelligence. And so often when we say AI, it seems like it's this far off phenomenon, something that's coming. But reality is we're using it every single day, whether we realize it or not. I opened the book talking from a quote with Ray Kurzweil, who's a famed computer scientist. He works at Google now and has written a number of really helpful books, even though I disagree with him significantly on a lot of the ways that he approaches these things. Uh, But Kurzweil opens up with a really great quote by basically saying that if tomorrow all of the AI systems that we use decided to wake up, which is kind of this super intelligence 
kind of futuristic Hollywood uh, thriller <laughs> plot line, if all of the systems woke up, we wouldn't get money from our banks. We couldn't travel. We couldn't communicate. We couldn't, in many ways, even go to school during a pandemic because of artificial intelligence undergirding some of our video communication systems. Um, our national security would be in peril. Things would not be manufactured. Everything would kind of grind to a halt in our daily lives. But often we think of AI as just something separate out there, but really we're using it every single day. And that's narrow AI. Yeah. This other idea is called strong AI or uh, broad, and those type of technologies don't exist. These are kind of dreams we're thinking about what might come in the future. And there's a highly debated, even within the AI community, if strong AI is even possible, which is human-like or human-level intelligence, which is more broad in application rather than that narrow application. And then, as I said, there's that other level of super intelligence, which is like surpassing human intelligence, which is basically every Hollywood robot movie you've ever seen. So Watson, IBM, would be considered narrow AI? It would not be considered strong AI? No, it would not. There, so we don't actually have any uh, type of general artificial intelligence, which is AGI. We currently just have AI, which is that narrow form of narrow. artificial intelligence. Do you – is another way of saying it, the thing I thought about, and, and um, I'm curious if – because you mentioned social media. And so um, is another way to think about this is if, if we're trying to get our brains around it, uh, thinking an algorithm like – Narrow AI is algorithm. Like I, working in social media from time to time, the thing that always comes up is the word algorithm. But even as you were talking about all these other places, I was thinking getting money from my bank. There is an algorithm that's applied to it uh, that allows for it. Like that, when I say algorithm, there's something uh, innately unhuman about it. Mm -hmm. There's something with AI that we've made. <laughs> you started with like RoboCops. It's good to know that we're not going to be starting with any or have any sort of RoboCop anytime soon. But um, I, I am just curious if that's another way to think about this or if that's uh, too narrow or too broad or just doesn't quite encapsulate everything that you're you're. Yeah, hearing. you can say narrow AI and algorithm. They're pretty synonymous. There's a, maybe a few okay. differences here and there, but by and large, it's the same thing. And essentially, this is a really complex math formula. Often we think of these things as really in-depth and really crazy, and they do. They have multiple levels, and they're very, very complicated, and they can do amazing, amazing things. But they are. They're very simply just algorithms or mathematical computations of a machine that's able to run those. And there's different ways to do that and things that have sped up over the years um, going from like an IBM Watson. We don't use that technology as much anymore as we're using other types of technology like deep neural networks and things like that uh, to be able to accomplish really complex tasks. But reality is, is for the, our purposes, AI is a narrow form of artificial intelligence. It's an algorithm. Um, it's driving all of our smart devices, allowing these devices to translate speech into written word um, and different things like that or sh showing us what comes up into our social media feeds and what weights and things. Because you know when you go on social media and you tweet something or you share something on Facebook or post it on Instagram, not everyone sees it at the same time. It's not real time. It's, it's curated. So anything that's personalized or curated – online or through digital technology is often done on the back of artificial intelligence. So specifically then, yeah, so specifically then, just, just to help parents understand this, the algorithms then in everyday life, uh, how does an algorithm shape how we use our phones or what? You, you alluded to this, but more specifically, how does it come at us uh, and, and shape what we see and ultimately you know, what we think and believe? Yeah, it does it in a really subtle ways, and that's one of the, the benefits of this technology, but also one of the extreme dangers of this technology um, because it's doing it in extremely subtle ways that we often don't even know about or think about. Um, just an example of thinking like through issues of fake news on our social media feeds, the more engagement a post gets, whether it's true or not, the often the more it's shown and spreads to other people. But as it's shown and spread, it's actually a decision that this algorithm is making because, again, just because if the four of us decided to tweet something all at the same time, I might see Walt's tomorrow, but you might see mine immediately based on your engagement and what the algorithm thinks you're going to like or what you're going to want to engage with. And it's not just who you follow because even in our social media feeds, often we see things from people we don't follow. It's because the AI that the, that the technology company has set up 
thinks that we'll want to see that based on our prior activity. And so all these systems are learning an immense amount about us, and they have immense amount of data um, and personalization in order to curate these environments to see so we see what we want to see. So my view on social media is probably very different than Walt's and very different than Chris and Jason's. It's very, very different. We think the Internet's just the Internet or social media is just the so it's just social media. But we live in very curated, personalized bubbles, and often that's driven on the back of artificial intelligence. Mm, this is good. This is good. We need to take a break. We'll be right back and continue our conversation with Jason Thacker. In an effort to help you help the kids you know and love navigate the difficult landscape of the emerging digital frontier to the glory of God, we've launched a Digital Kids Initiative here at CPYU. Thanks to a generous grant from a company called DAS, you can access our Digital Kids Initiative and a growing number of free resources and downloads by visiting the website at digitalkidsinitiative.com. This is one more way that we're helping you lead your kids to live lives where their faith in God is integrated into the growing amount of time they're spending with social media and technology. Well, welcome back, everybody, to Youth Culture Matters. We're having a conversation with Jason Thacker about his book, The Age of AI, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity, which really is a book about what many call digital discipleship. It really is getting us thinking about what it means to glorify God as technology unfolds around us. And we need to hear things like this. And this is why we have Jason on here today, and we love talking about it. Uh, I, it was really interesting to me, Jason, when you got or when I got to the end of the book, towards the end of the book, you mentioned Moore's Law, which is something mm -hmm. we've talked about here for, for, it seems like forever since we've had our digital kids initiative. And it's really a law about the exponential growth of technology. Can you just explain to people what that is, what Moore's Law is, and how you're seeing technology advancing, what we can expect? Yeah, well, and you're exactly right. Moore's Law is basically the exponential growth of technology. So as things, these transistors and these, the ability of these machines become smaller, the uh, processing power, that gets smaller, but it also becomes exponentially more powerful. And this is why we've seen such a surge in artificial intelligence in the last decade or two, is because ultimately we have the technologies and some of the ideas behind a lot of these deep neural networks and these deep technologies, deep uh, artificial intelligence and all these different ways to go about it, we had the thoughts and we had the theory, but we didn't have the computing power. Um, because what used to take, I remember my dad telling me that computers, even when I was um, in kind of the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, those machines were hoss. They were huge, even laptops. I mean, it was like putting a huge brick on your lap. Um, they were hot. They ran super slow and they were huge. But now we have more computing power in an iPhone than I did growing up. Um, and all of the computers probably combined in my household, more storage um, on my iPhone than my dad had for all of the material that he ever worked on in his early kind of technology background. And so the reality is, is that Moore's Law is this kind of perpetual growth, this exponential growth that some are saying is going to end at some point. Um, others say that it won't. We'll just shift technologies again and be able to uh, make our computers even faster and more efficient. And I think that's kind of a, a very telling sign for the way that technology works in our lives is because reality is, is that we can say, well, I want to I want to step away from technology and we don't use certain devices in our house and all of that. But reality is, is you're surrounded by technology all the time. It's just we grow more accustomed to it. And the more accustomed we grow to it, it's just part of our daily lives and we don't even think about it. And so one of the hopes and the reasons that I wrote the book was not for us to reject technology because I don't think that's the way that God would call us to engage the world around us is to completely reject it because there are many good uses of these technologies. They make our lives beneficial. They make things easier. They make our work better and more and higher quality. They free us up from a lot of mundane tasks and let us focus on more creative tasks or thoughtful tasks. But as much as we can utilize and embrace and use these technologies for good, ultimately God's the love of God and love of neighbor, we can also see these technologies being abused and misused in many very dehumanizing ways. And we see some of these grotesque uh, examples through 
China's use uh, of kind of rounding up uh, the Uyghur Muslims, and you see a lot of these concentration camp type camps where they're using surveillance, facial recognition technology, some of these dystopian type of uh, ways. But we also see other ways that technology is subtly shaping us. Um, some listeners may be familiar. If you haven't watched it, I encourage you to watch it. I would encourage parents and youth workers to watch it without their children at first, just so you can kind of understand what's going on to be able to explain it. But the social, uh, the social dilemma uh, that came out on Netflix at the end of 2020 was a really helpful um, documentary. It's not from a gospel perspective. There's really no biblical truth. And I would disagree with kind of some of the trajectories that the documentary and the filmmakers took, but a lot of the information is really helpful. And it shows the ubiquity in the ways that these technologies are subtly shaping us every single day, specifically through the use of social media and how we get exposed to certain ideas over time, we become more accustomed and comfortable with them. And then we start to see these, the rise of conspiracy theories or misinformation, disinformation. We see the way these things can radicalize certain types of people or mindsets. We see tribalism and polarization. We've seen that through the election cycle of the last few years. Things in our culture become more intense and ingrained where we have to pick a side. Well, the gospel would call us and the Bible calls us to step into the world, to engage it, but engage it from a place of hope and peace, knowing that we know the end of the story. We know Revelation 21. We don't have to be fearful of technology. We have to be realistic about technology, the good and the bad, how it's shaping and forming us every single day. And that's what I wanted to write in the book is for us to slow down in the age of speeding up, uh, which is kind of the age of artificial intelligence, the faster, the faster, the better is to slow down a little bit and think about what's actually going on here, how these things are shaping us, and then how we want to move forward specifically in our churches and our communities and specifically in our families and how to equip parents to think wisely about these things. Because again, it's not about rejecting it or accepting it. It's about engaging these things and seeing the good and the bad and seeking to love God and love our neighbor above all. So I want to reiterate what you just said about slowing down. I was thinking about that as you were uh, getting ready to talk about it. I thought, boy, that's, you know, that's a that's a brilliant piece of advice for people because our tendency is to when we see something new come out technologically, you know, we look at it with wonder and awe and we say, "Hey, I've got to get that." And you know, one of our cultural trends right now that we're concerned about, especially among those who are younger is living in the moment, not thinking about the past and learning lessons from the past or thinking about the consequences of our decisions that we make, you know, how that will shape us in the future. And when it comes to technology, I always think about Marshall McLuhan and, you know, the warning he gave that, you know, first we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. And we typically don't know how our tools are shaping us for better or for worse until a few years down the road, sometimes maybe more quickly than that. And certainly I hear that. I mean, that's what I hear practically from parents who, you know, they'll say, I wish I had never, and then they talk about a piece of technology that they allowed in their child's life maybe too soon. They weren't careful about teaching about it. So we need to, we need to really talk about, uh, you know, what it means to, uh, you know, to slow down on that. And do you have any specific advice on that for slowing down? Anything specifically you would say to parents, some practical things? Yeah, I think a lot of it's just going to be thinking about the technologies that we use in our families and how we use them. And often even the technologies that we just hand our children, obviously, often I hear a lot of parents talk about, well, my 13-year-old saying they're the only person who doesn't have a smartphone, so I guess I have to do it. No, you don't. You don't actually have to do that. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't, but that means you should be cautious and you should think biblically about when is appropriate. And this is going to differ for every single family. So there isn't like a cookie cutter answer, say, well, you hit this magic age of 13 and every, it's based on maturity and knowing your children and walking alongside them. Some of the advice I give in the book is to use these technologies with one another, rather than specifically just handing a smartphone or a device or even things like virtual reality headsets, just handing it to our children is experiencing it with them. So you can model how a good uh, relationship with these technologies and these tools. And also, everything in your house doesn't have to be uh, smart. We have a lot of smart devices in our home, and we enjoy those things. But my children don't have a, te a television in their room. They don't have a computer. They don't have – they have their own iPads, but those iPads are only used at the kitchen table and downstairs. They don't take them into their bedrooms and things. My children are very young, but over time is teaching them – habits and how to mod and you're doing that through modeling but you're also doing that through teaching 
about the appropriate uses of these te- type of technologies in our homes. The thing that I'm I'm coming back to as we're talking about this uh, is behavior. The way behavior is being shaped by AI, um, by all the many algorithms that we allow in our lives, right? And so I'm, you're, you're, we're talking about our children, and I'm just really wondering how uh, those algorithms, how AI, how uh, life as we know it with technology is shaping our identity. Like how how is it forming the way that we behave, think? Um, yeah, and and well, I want to start there because I, I think that that leads to some other questions um, that I think are important for us to consider, both as parents and then also as youth workers. Yeah, well, I'm really glad that you brought up uh, Marshall McLuhan. Uh, he's an older figure that maybe a lot of people may not be familiar with, but there's a lot of older figures, um, even through the 50s and the 60s. Um, one of my favorite is um, a gentleman named Jacques Ellul. He's a French sociologist, and Ellul is incredibly has this incredible foresight of what's coming. You read some of his older works in like 1950s, 1960s, and you're like, oh my goodness, he's talking about my Apple smartphone and Snapchat. He's not. But it seems like he is because he, the way he talks about the shape and the form of technology and the way that we often in the church think of technology is just simply a tool. Well, my, this phone is a piece of technology, and that's true. But technology is kind of a larger force. It's a larger shaping force. And so you think of um, a popular like smartphone or excuse me, a um, smart doorbell or a ring doorbell or something like that. We have a Nest doorbell, and we really, really enjoy it. But you think of why do we have that piece of technology? And this is the, to pull from an old uh, philosopher named Martin Heidegger. You hear about this web of relations, and he talks about this in terms of technology, is that these technologies are not just isolated tools, but they're part of a larger web of relationships. So specifically with the rise of the internet in the 90s, then you had kind of web 2.0, the ability to sell things online and to market things. And so you had the rise of Amazon where we started, it was the everything store, started out as a really cool bookstore and then it turned into, we use Amazon for almost everything these days. But the rise of online shopping, so you see how this technology of the internet turned into online shopping, which means we started having packages delivered to our door and the more packages we have delivered to the door, well, there was a likelihood of people coming to take those packages or not knowing that they arrived. And so what's next? So then we came up with a camera technology. So it's not just looking at these cameras and saying, well, this Nest doorbell uh, is just a piece of technology and it's just monitoring my front porch. It's actually much larger than that. It's kind of this part of this larger web of relations. And as you to kind of pull on a Lulian kind of look here, Elul would say that the technology is not just the machine, but it's actually a larger force. It's a larger shaping force. And earlier what we talked about, this drive towards efficiency and speed is something that Alul picked up in the 50s of the shaping of nature of technology is that it causes us to go faster and faster and faster and ultimately kind of bend our will towards a machine-like um, way of thinking about things, thinking about life, and ultimately even thinking about our fellow man and our families as we think of other people as just what they can give us, what they, what use they serve in our life rather than them being created and as embodied image bearers of God. And so when you take this larger view of technology, it helps us to understand not only the ways that technology is shaping and forming us into many ways, very dehumanizing type of ways to think of other people as simply machines, as simply tools or simply bodies, um, but to uh, start to treat them that way. And it also shapes the way that we view ourselves. And so that's where I go back early on in the book and talking about the kind of key fundamental questions is who is God and how is he, who is he? And if there is a God, what is he like? The Bible is very clear about that throughout the, uh, throughout the book of Genesis, throughout the rest of the scriptures, but specifically in Genesis one and two, and then how he's created us in his image and what that actually means and how that plays out. And then I think one of the greatest ways that we can live out this call to love God and love our neighbor is to love God and love our neighbor through love as we're loving others, just seeing the dignity and the value and worth of every single human being and prioritizing that above efficiency, above our technologies and our tools and pursuing the love of God and love of neighbor and upholding that dignity because so many of these tools have these subtle 
dehumanizing effects on how we think and treat about other uh, human beings created in God's image. So is it fair to say the way that you're there, – there sim, seems to be a trajectory that can go one of two ways, that it can actually be this dynamic of we recognize God's uh, ability within this and what's happening and, and be used to, to his glory. And then there's this other dynamic, and we become more aware of it as, as we become aware of the, the tool not being the end. But then there's also this other dynamic of there is another trajectory that kind of keeps pushing and forming. And and so like I, I'm, I'm thinking of two very specific things, and so I, I wonder if you can speak into them. One is you brought up politics and how our algorithms are really determined, how you and I and Walt and Chris, we all see different things on our news feeds based upon the way that we click, engage, see, stay, whatever. Um, and so I'm thinking of, is there ever going to be a time where, or ability that we can have some cohesiveness or ability to think? So I think in that realm, but then I, I, I think specifically, so the work I often am engaged is around sex and sexuality. I'm thinking specifically around pornography. And if we go back to uh, the early, well, if we go back to the '80s, you know, when your dad was on the internet, and I didn't even know what it was, and uh, and first exposure was always a magazine. It was 2D. It really wasn't anything. And now it's becoming, it, it's turned to 3D now, 4D because now it's virtual. And and there's this this thing that's going to keep keep going until eventually we're going to have to have some sort of change. So I'm just wondering how we speak into those two trajectories. One is you know, it being used for the glory of God and two, like this almost numbing, it feels almost numbing in the way that that works. No, I think you're exactly right. And I think one of the best ways that the church can serve our communities in this time is to be countercultural. And what that actually means is that one, uh, at least one day a week, probably multiple times a week, is the church gathering together. And that's one of the most difficult parts for me and my family during this pandemic is that we're not unable to gather with our, our local physical body of the of church, uh, the body of Christ. And so being able to do that is that reality is, is that 365 days a year, seven days a week, we're being formed and shaped and discipled by technology. Well, the church has the ability is that we're kind of counter discipling in many ways. And so as we hear things, uh, maybe it's a little bit more analog. There's a really helpful book for listeners if they want to grab by Jay Kim. He's a friend of mine, wrote a book called Analog Church by IVP uh, that came out a few, I guess it came out right after my book, I, did, I think did back in 2020. Really helpful book, kind of very thoughtful about approaching these things as an analog church and what that means instead of just pursuing digital for digital sake. is kind of thinking and slowing down a little bit. But part of that is the way that the church is going to be able to form and to shape us um, is exactly what it's supposed to do. And so hearing the word of God preached, singing songs with one another, seeing the humanity of our brothers and sisters and seeing that the diversity for the glory of God. And then the other side of that too is, as uh, Jason said, talking about sexuality, is that there is that numbing effect where these technologies, they go from a print magazine to a digital form, and that digital form becomes not just pictures online, but becomes videos online and then become more interactive. And then you see the rise of things like uh, virtual reality and VR porn. Um, and I think this is really helpful for especially parents and youth workers. Um, when you're, If young people are looking at purchasing or you're looking at purchasing a VR headset, you need to know that almost there are very few, if any, right now VR headsets that actually have any type of parental controls on them. I can't tell you um, looking at some of these online forums where parents are decrying, like, I had no idea that this VR headset, my, I, I picked up this VR headset after giving it to my teenager, and it is full of pornography. They had no idea because it's such an immersive, personalized experience. And that's kind of the, the trajectory in many ways of technologies. It becomes more isolating at the time that it's promising to connect us with others. It's actually isolating us and make us more focused on ourselves. And so the way that these technologies subtly form and shape us is that it's very isolating. And in many ways, the church can be countercultural to create it, saying we're created for community to be with one another, not just digitally, but also physically with one another. And that's the way it helps to shape and form us uh, ultimately for the glory of God, the love of God and love of neighbor. Mm. This is so good. And I got to tell you, Jason Thacker, as soon as you mentioned Jacques Ellul, 
You know, I, I mean, that's just awesome because I wish more people were reading him. He was a sociologist when I was a sociology major who really shaped a lot of my thinking in his book, uh, The Technological Society, along with others. I mean, he wrote extensively about this. And, you know, it, it's great you mentioned him. And, and a, lot of, a lot of those other media theorists back in the 50s and the 60s, they were quite prophetic. I think many people saw them as being kind of kooky and nuts. Uh, but when you look at what's happened and how things have unfolded, it's quite prophetic. So, hey, we're going to really take another yeah, we're going to take another break, and uh, we'll be back. We'll finish up. I want to finish up uh, by talking with Jason about some very practical steps that we can take as parents and youth workers uh, to to use technology and and to move forward with technology to the glory of God. We'll be right back. If you enjoy listening to Youth Culture Matters and would like to support the ongoing efforts of this ministry, you can do so by visiting cpyu.org giving to make a donation. Your prayers and financial support make this podcast possible. Well, as we come out of the break here and we think about going down the home stretch in our conversation with Jason Thacker, I want to let you know a couple things. One, Jason Soshenik had to drop off. Uh, he's a dad and he's taking his kids to school, so uh, he's not with us for this last segment. And I do want to remind people as well that everything that's mentioned on this podcast, on this particular episode, if you go to cpyu.org and find the player, for this podcast. I know you may get your podcast through other platforms, which is great, but if you're looking for a list of resources that are mentioned here and links to all those resources, be they books, articles, websites, uh, we'll talk about some more of those things here in just a minute. Uh, we Chris Wagner puts all those things on there. So if you go to the to the player on cpyu.org for this particular episode, you can find all of those. And as always, we're grateful to those of you who listen, uh, when you subscribe, when you share, when you give us a good review, that's helpful as well to spread the news about Youth Culture Matters. Jason Thacker, I want to I talk as we finish out here in some very practical ways because you've, you know, you're engaging with a lot of this. This is what you've immersed yourself in in terms of thinking Christianly about technology. You're aware of what the scriptures have to say about these things, and you're helping us understand that. You're also aware of a lot of the developments in the world of technology and where these things are going, artificial intelligence and other developments as well. As you look forward, can you help us as parents and youth workers understand maybe some of what I would call the caution zones, you know, places where, as you said earlier, we need to slow down. And, and, and what's at risk here is our ability to uh, glorify God and not fall into idolatry with our tools of technology and our, our uses of technology. And as well, you know, advancing our human flourishing, you know, being fully human as God desires us to be fully human rather than undermining our humanity and really undoing us by uh, deforming us, I would say, or misshaping us. So just go ahead and start to share with us some of the things that are really on your mind that would help us, you know, by waving a little bit of a caution flag and get us thinking and moving a little more slowly. Yeah, I think first and foremost, some of the biggest issues that we're addressing right now and that we need to be thinking about is coming out of this pandemic is this rise of technology and the dependence upon technology. Now, and the flip side of that, we are incredibly blessed by technology, blessed by God through the use of technology during this season because we're able to stay connected, even being able to do this podcast, being able to see each other, being able to hear one another, being able to connect one, with one another. And the same is true in our churches of the ability to stay connected. Maybe it's not physically gathering with one another in some ways. In some places, it's different than others, um, depending on where the virus is and how it, um, how ubiquitous it is there. But in many ways, you see these restrictions on gatherings, and so we've kind of had to rely where you've had even smaller churches who have never used any type of digital technology in many ways forced upon them uh, the having to use these things to be able to stay connected with one another. And there are great advantages to that. But one of the dangers and one of the things that kind of a project that I'm working on right now is thinking through how technology is kind of this the year of 2020 and 2021 has kind of um, upended a lot of our patterns. But it's also that had that exponential rise in use of technology. So we've had more advances in many ways forced upon us in the last year than maybe in the last decade. 
And so the ways that our churches think through and apply these the use of these tools to say, okay, are we going to prioritize the physical gathering of the church? Or are we always going to have the option to gather digitally? And what does that look like? You have a lot of churches thinking through issues of communion or community groups, uh, issues of baptism even, and thinking through what does that look like in a digital age. And I think what's helpful for us is to step back again, instead of just pursuing innovation for innovation's sake or just rejecting technology outright, is how can these things be a complement, not a replacement for the things that we do as the local church? And that same kind of paradigm goes into our families is how do we use these tools in our families to train up the next generation and using these tools wisely? Because reality is, is just sheltering our children and even ourselves from uh, these technologies sequestering and putting them away um, isn't really going to serve us well in the long term because these we're not able to turn back the dial. Not that we would want to go back to the 50s or the early 1900s, but we live in this age just as the the age that God has called us to live in, which is I call the age of AI, kind of the name of the book there. But we, this is the age that God has called us to live in. And so it's not about accepting everything or rejecting everything. It's how do we use these things wisely? And so part of that is um, using biblical ethics, which often sounds like this really disconnected field of study, these crazy questions and not really knowing how to answer it. But ethics is really just discipleship. And so what are we doing in our churches? What are we doing in our families to train up the next generation to utilize these tools wisely and to be thoughtful about approaching them rather than just pursuing innovation for innovation's sake. Some other things that I think are really kind of pressing upon us or kind of fall under two things, which is kind of the rise and the influence of social media and also the issues of digital privacy and data collection. I have a chapter on digital privacy and data collection. Social media is kind of throughout the rest of the book, but it's actually the topic of my next book that's going to be coming out with uh, Broadman and Holman or B&H Publishing, um, specifically on discernment in the digital age. Um, I'm in the process of writing that book right now, but that's kind of on the forefront of my mind is the ways that social media is shaping and forming us, and then what do we do about it? We, ate, we live in this age of disinformation or misinformation, deep fakes, fake news, um, kind of raging polarization, raging tribalism, not just politically, but even culturally. And so we're seeing us segmented and divided. And it's ironic to me because the promise of all of these social technologies was to bring us together as a global community. But really, it's separated and isolated us, and that's through, in many ways, the use of these AIs or these algorithms that have segmented off to make these personalized experiences. And so the question for the church is, how do we then approach these things from a biblical mindset? So that's a project I'm working on right now, thinking through a lot of those things, but a lot of kind of my biggest advice for folks, for folks is to slow down. And that seems like it's really trite and doesn't seem like it'd be very helpful um, just to say slow down. But reality is, is if we slow down a little bit, we might be a little bit more thoughtful about these things. And we don't have to have all of these technologies. Some things we can, we might not adopt in our families. We might not use them. Other things we can, but we use them within reason and within caution. And we do so in community with other people, not just in our own family. But that's kind of the beauty of the local church is that we can be challenged and pushed and uh, with one another and ask these really hard questions and live life together in a world that is, that under the promise of building these stronger and tighter communities is actually isolating us more and more. And so that's kind of the way that the church in many ways can be countercultural. And then lastly, I think a lot of it surrounds, we have a lot of fears over data privacy, uh, data collection, what's being collected on us, how is it being collected, how is it being used? And that's where I really open up that chapter of saying what's actually going on here, how much data is actually being captured on us, what ways what ways are these technologies and these uh, these companies using this data, and how is that not only controlling the things we see and the things we do, but even shaping the things we like? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've been on uh, my phone, like scrolling through Instagram, and see something I talked about the other day, but actually never Googled or searched for, but it somehow knew that. Sometimes it's a great product, and I'm like, that's fantastic, and other times I'm like, that's super creepy. How do they know that? Well, how many times have we just clicked through those user agreements um, and those privacy policies as fast as possible so we can get to the device? Well, we're agreeing to a lot of things. And this is kind of a larger debate in our society about the role of these technology companies, the data that they collect, 
and also the kind of privacy elements. Do we have a right to privacy? And that's another project that I'm working on right now is understanding kind of a Christian theological perspective on digital privacy and what that looks like. And so I, I have a number of projects in the, in the hopper uh, that I'm working on, but I think some of the most pressing surround privacy, specifically the rise in ubiquity of social media and how it's shaping and forming us, and then kind of that counter countercultural nature of the local church. Mm. I, I really like as you, hearing you talk about this because these are the kinds of things we've always said, you know, parental awareness, you cannot respond unless you know the reality. And so mm-hmm. I think, parents, you need to be listening to what's being said here. Get this book and read it because it will raise your awareness to the reality. I know it's a developing field, and so, you know, Jason's still in process even as he's, he's talking about this. Uh, but, you know, and then we have a responsibility to talk about these things with our kids because they're going to have these technologies and even more down the road long, long after we're gone. I want to go back to something you said about church. You know, when we first had the quarantine and churches weren't meeting, it seemed on social media. On Sunday mornings, I was seeing a lot of photos pop up, right, on the different social media platforms where somebody's sitting, their feet are up, all you see are their pajama pants, their bedroom slippers, there's a TV down there, cup of coffee in one hand, and then uh, like a plate of waffles on their lap saying, you know, very happily, hey, I'm going to church, you know, this is great. And, And I'm afraid people are going to morph into that. I know that having grown up in a pastor's family, I I was in church every Sunday morning of my life. And when the quarantine started and and I wasn't there, I'll confess this, you know, there was a part of me that was going, well, it's relaxing. I get why people love not having to go on a Sunday morning. And that's beyond, you know, thinking clearly. I mean, just from a purely functional level, you know, and so just, again, can you reiterate something on that? Because I do think the gathering together is so important, and youth workers have been lamenting this. Their kids just want to get back together, and there's great joy when they do. Yeah, and so God's created us for community. The Bible's really clear about that through Genesis 1 through 3, that God has created us to be in community with one another. That's kind of the one of the, the strings or the threads throughout all of Scripture is the formation of a community, a people of God. Ultimately, it comes to the New, the New Testament, we see this formed as the local church. Um, and so this, this idea that we're not created to be isolated, um, I know that it's very disorienting. I, I, with my children, we have a four-and-a-half-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old. Mommy and Daddy do not talk about going to church on Sunday when we turn it on on te- TV or YouTube Live or something like that. That's just a subtle way even though they'll probably never remember it, it's at least a good reminder for me that this is a substitute. This is a, a temporary solution, and it's not even a good – it's not a great solution in many ways. It's just a temporary solution to get us through this very hard season, this dangerous season, and there were good reasons that we weren't gathering together so that this virus didn't spread and affect more people. But this isn't, as I said earlier, this isn't going to be a replacement. We need to think about these technologies as not a replacement for God's uh, church or the gathering of God's people together. It's more of a supplement. And you can see this through singing. I think there was a study that came out just not too long ago um, that hearing a, a sermon is this, in many ways a one-way. Depending on the church tradition you're on, it might be a little bit more two-way where you're a little bit more vocal from the pews. Um, but at least in my Baptist tradition, you don't see a lot of this kind of two-way street in terms of preaching. And so preaching seemed very normal to me, especially if you're in a very large church or a large gathering. You often are looking at the screen anyway. Um, so it wasn't that huge of a difference. But singing is just weird. I don't know if you guys have experienced that, but I just yeah. – I sing, but it's just me sometimes, and my wife is sometimes singing. My kids aren't, but I don't hear anybody, and it's just disorienting to me. There are certain things that translate well into digital spaces in terms of discipleship, in terms of teaching sometimes, information transfer and download, sharing of resources that don't translate well. Uh, There's other things that don't translate well in terms of like singing, and I think a lot of times the sacraments or the ordinances of the local church in terms of the Lord's Supper and baptism and things, these are created to do embodied and fleshed with one another physically present. There's a reason for that. It's not that the scriptures call us to sing songs of, and spiritual songs to encourage one another. Well, we're not just doing it to sing to the Lord. We're also singing so we can hear our brothers and sisters singing alongside of us 
And we miss that through a lot of these digital mediated experiences. And so I think it's really helpful for the church to realize we'll utilize technology moving forward and probably utilize more than we ever have in the past. But we need to prioritize the local physical gathering of the local church. And we can utilize these tools for me. Uh, a lot of listeners may or may not know, but uh, my wife has, we've gone through two, two years now of cancer treatments and chemotherapy. And so for us being able to gather digitally, and I don't even like the word gathering in that sense, but being able to gather with our local church is the best we're going to have for a little bit because she's immunocompromised and she isn't able to gather for safety purposes. And those that are more bedridden or homebound in our communities to be able to have that tool to have some type of connection. You can see the really good benefits of that, but the danger becomes when this becomes an all, all out replacement for something that we can do and should and are called to do together, gathered local as the local church. Mm, that's good. Boy, hey, truth be told, when we are gathered with our local church and I sing, that's disorienting to everybody around me. So <laughs> I think people, people are happy for that. Uh, you know, let's finish out here. And Jason, tell us a little bit about your podcast and anything, any other resources that we can push people to that would be helpful to them that, that you've put together. Yeah, obviously we have the Age of AI from Zondervan. It's my first book. Um, kind of, it's a more of a a meta book, and what I mean by that is it step out. We address a number of different issues, and I try to set up kind of a biblical or theological perspective on how to engage technology. And a lot of my further work, the projects that I kind of have in the hopper right now, specifically focused on social media and privacy and the local church. Um, those are going to be kind of derivatives in many ways of the age of AI, kind of working those out in more of a uh, smaller context, more uh, focused context. The one of the, a lot of the resources that we put together, I host a weekly podcast called Weekly Tech, when I interview leaders from kind of across the spectrum and technology and ministry um, and cultural issues to just address a lot of the pressing technology issues and to explain a lot of these things. Because often when we approach technology, it can become very overwhelming. It can become very complicated and confusing, and my goal on the podcast is to explain really big concepts in ways that's very approachable for parents and ministry leaders. So it's called the Weekly Tech Podcast. It comes out on Monday mornings as well. Uh, it comes out alongside the newsletter, which is designed to prepare to, or to help people think about the big pressing technology issues of the day from a clear biblical ethical perspective and also to stay up to date on the latest tech news. Because we know that pastors and ministry leaders have hundreds of things going on. And so the idea of staying up to date on technology news might seem overwhelming. So I try to curate that and make it very digestible of four or five stories that kind of here are the highlights from the week that you might want to at least know about. Um, so there's different types of resources like that. There's a number of things that we do at the ERLC. You can go to erlc.com. A number of blogs and videos and articles and podcasts and resources put together. Um, but you can also go to my website. It's jasonthacker.com, and that's where my book, that's where all the links, it's everything I write, including the podcast and the newsletter and these future projects that I'm working on will all be announced there as well. Yeah, and I want to let people know that if they feel overwhelmed by talking about technology and they're thinking, wow, this book he's talking about, The Age of AI, might be above you know, my ability to comprehend because I just don't have a lot of background on this. Absolutely not. This is a, this is a book that's extremely readable and where things are explained well. And so I want to recommend it again. Chris, you read it. Anything you want to say as we finish out here? No, I've been I've been silent, but this is this is right in my wheelhouse about the things that I think about a lot. So um, I was just sitting in, soaking it all in. I really appreciated this conversation. I, I, I have a hundred other questions. I wish you could talk for 12 more hours and pick your brain about this kind of stuff because it's, like I said, it's it's topics that – I care about and topics I'm interested in, but I think this was really helpful for our audience. So uh, I hope it was, uh, I hope they found it as engaging as I did. Absolutely. And, and Jason, we will have you back. I really appreciate what you're doing again. Jason Thacker has been our guest. The age of AI is his book, artificial intelligence and the future of humanity. Highly recommended moms, dads, youth workers, be thinking about these things, be praying about these things, be seeking the scriptures to see you know, what kind of guidance we need as we navigate this unfolding world of technology. And we'll stay in touch with Jason. He's got some great resources that will help you. So thanks, Jason, uh, for yeah, being Yeah, thank you. Me. I appreciate you guys having me. And for everyone who's joined us on this podcast, again, I remind you, uh, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share the podcast, let other people know about it, and give us a good review. 
and come back to cpyu.org, our homepage. And if you find the player for this podcast, everything that we've mentioned here, Chris Wagner will have posted links to. So until we meet again, thanks so much. We'll see you on the next episode of Youth Culture Matters. Thanks for joining us for Youth Culture Matters, a podcast from the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. If you'd like to learn more about today's youth culture, visit our website at cpyu.org. And if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, email us at podcast at cpyu.org.